Greetings and blessings, saints. Welcome to the Revelation Decoded Podcast. I'm your host and teacher, Gil Maza. We are going through an epic study through the book of Revelation, unlike any you might have heard before. Did the first century Christians understand the book of Revelation when it was first written by the Apostle John? You bet. They understood it and acted on it, and therefore they were spared the greatest tribulation that could ever come upon the Jewish people and the cataclysmic end of the Old Covenant. Think you know the book of Revelation? Come and see. Now, the next thing is, is that the book of Revelation is the most Jewish book in the Bible. Maybe with the exception of Hebrews. The most Jewish book in the Bible. Revelation is difficult, if not impossible, to understand without a working knowledge of the Old Testament. The book of Revelation has 404 verses. Even though it doesn't quote the Old Testament, it alludes or refers to the Old Testament 734 times. Okay? The book of Revelation has 404 verses. It alludes or refers to the Old Testament over 734 times. John the Apostle tends to merge and adapt Old Testament texts to deliver his message. John's favorite books seem to be Daniel, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, and Jeremiah. The most referenced book in Revelation is Isaiah. It's referenced 79 times. 79 times. 53 references to Daniel. 48 references from the book of Ezekiel. Psalms are mentioned 43 times. Exodus parallels to the book of Revelation 27 times. Besides the plagues in Egypt, the victorious saints sing the song of Moses in Exodus 15, Revelation 2.4 as the comparison. Most of the tabernacle furniture God commands Moses and the Israelites to find to build finds its way into heaven as we are told in Revelation. Okay? John sees the ark. John sees right the, 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 the lights, the lampstands, and many other elements as well. Okay? Now, most of the tabernacle, okay, I already said that in Revelation, those elements in the earthly tabernacle were built with the same pattern and specifications as the ones found in heaven. John sees the golden lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of sacrifice, the Holy of Holies. He also refers to Jeremiah 22 times, 15 times in Zechariah, one per chapter, <laughs> The Minor Prophets, Amos nine times, Joel eight times, and many, many more. Wow. John takes up the prophetic mantle, okay, in this end-time judgment that they were facing and presents himself to his people, to the Jewish people, like the Old Testament prophets did. As he declares what? God's judgment coming upon the unbelieving nation of Israel in the first century. He is... For all intents and purposes, mimicking the Old Testament prophets. Now, one quick tidbit about Old Testament prophets. Who were they preaching to? Who were the Old Testament prophets, the majority of them, 
There was a few exceptions, Jonah to Nineveh and others, but majority of prophets in the Old Testament, they were preaching to apostate Israel. Not to the world, not to the unbeliever, not to the, to the rest of the world, the Gentiles, no. Every single one of those prophets, except for some exceptions, were sent directly to Israel. So that means that all that heavy language, the sun falling from the stars falling from the sky, the sun going dark, the moon turning blood red, that was all directed to the people of God in Israel, not to the world at large. We tend to forget that. Okay, we tend to forget that. But here, um, all these prophets, John takes up the mantle once one final time, okay, to preach to the unbelieving. Uh, to unbelieving uh, Jewish leadership, the spiritual leadership, uh, that, uh, hey, you better come to Jesus. Okay, he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. Otherwise, you're going to be lost. He who has tasted that the Lord is good, once you have done away with that sacrifice, what sins for sacrifice is less? There is nothing left for anybody. There is no separate salvation for Gentiles and no separate salvation for Jews. All must come to Messiah, to Jesus, to be saved. There is no other way, okay? Um, John uses many Jewish images. There is a ton of references to the Old Testament persons, institutions, and geography. Persons mentioned in Revelation, Balaam, Balak, Jezebel, David, Judah, Elijah, Michael, Moses, Gog and Magog. Old Testament institutions John refers to are the priesthood, the temple, the altar of sacrifice, the 12 tribes, the Ark of the Covenant, the Tabernacle of Testimony. John refers to, ge to geography in the Old Testament. Paradise, Mount Zion, Babylon, Jerusalem, Sodom, Egypt, Megiddo, the Tree of Life, the River of Life, the Euphrates River. So, as you can see, John uses very strong Jewish imagery. And language in Revelation. I'll pause there for a quick. Uh, anybody questions, and then we'll keep going. Question, Gil. How are we doing? Go ahead. If Revelations is that written in Koine Greek, or was it written in Hebrew? Um, it was written primarily in Greek. In Greek. Right. In a very rough, a very rough Greek. You would almost yeah. say like a yeah. common street Greek. Yeah. Yeah, that was the Greek that the that the. Um, military use so that nothing got mis misunderstood that, there you go there you go well, okay. all right so that's it okay thank you anybody else i'm really starting to worry about you guys <laughs> when i start making sense that you guys got a problem okay when i start making sense <laughs> so, so also did so did the um jewish people understand Greek during that time so that they would be able to read Revelations? Well, they had to. They, they had to, wouldn't they? I mean, they had to understand Koine Greek to understand the Romans because they were under Roman occupation during that whole time. So, yes. So they language. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, yes. Weren't the seven churches um, Gentile in nature primarily? No, the, 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 they, weren't, they were not primarily... Uh, primarily Gentile there because most of the original Christians back in those days were Jewish people were Jewish the majority in the beginning right the, the the ones that appeared the majority that appeared to the Apostle Peter when he did his great sermon in Acts chapter 2 and throughout yes many many Gentiles came along 
and many Gentiles were part of the of the church in that time, but those churches in those days were primarily were primarily Jewish in nature, even though they had, you know, they, they were completed, they had Messiah uh, in them. Okay, but they were not primarily Gentile churches. Later on, throughout the centuries, many of them ended up, you know, getting destroyed or earthquakes or whatever, and they did become, you know, primarily Gentile, but uh, originally not. From what I understand through history, the, at least primarily, most of the people that were saved in the beginning were of the Jewish, of the Jewish faith. Right. That's why I think um, Revelation later on makes a big a point to talk about the fact that during that time, right, that 144,000, that perfect number of Jews was going to be gathered and then dispersed amongst the entire world and put the mark of God on them. That was going to be the primary thrust was going to be to leave the temple, to leave Jerusalem, to be able to communicate the gospel throughout the entire world. So they had plenty, uh, I'm assuming you're asking because, you know, would all the Gentiles be able to understand? Well, probably not initially, but the Jewish people that were primarily in charge, right? Because the apostles were in charge of all the teaching, primarily in the beginning. And then their disciples as they went were also Jewish people that came with them along with the few Gentiles, right? Well, I was thinking more from the fact that it was written in Greek. Uh-huh. had a wider audience. Because I, I, I don't imagine that even though they were Jews and they might have been in uh, Thyatira, they probably didn't um, immigrate there from uh, Jerusalem. They probably were converted. Would that be accurate? They were Jewish converts? Uh, uh, yes, uh, I, I, I would say that's accurate. And again, um, I don't I, I don't know enough about the details of the history there, except to say that the impression I get from the book of Revelation is that John is intentionally writing in such a way that it would be primarily the Jewish Christians that would catch it, that would understand it right away, and perhaps sending the letters, uh, because a lot of people think that, uh, also get the false impression that uh, John just sent those letters. No, it was the entire book that was dispersed through all to all the seven churches, which if you look at it on a map, it's like a perfect postal route. And from there, it was spread out into that region in the in probably the most efficient, fastest way possible. And so it, it would, I guess, I'm assuming that the primary thrust would have to be the Jewish believers that were reading this and be able to make sense out of it because of their background as Jews or be taught it as they went. Because they would have to be taught the scriptures throughout um, the 40 years from the time Jesus was uh, crucified and resurrected all the way through to the time when the cataclysm happened. But that's about as much as, uh, that's my best impression of that. So uh, I don't have a more comprehensive answer to that. Okay? All right, then back to mute land. Now. Another key component to the book of Revelation is the number seven. The number seven. It is key to understanding Revelation because John, the apostle, weaves sevens throughout the entire book. We begin to the, with the letters addressed to the seven churches. While there were many, many other churches in Asia at this time, John picks the seven that are in the best postal route available to him and would provide the best and widest dissemination of the letter. Also, these seven churches would be representative of the churches in that time. There are seven spirits of God. There are seven angels of the seven churches. 
There are seven seals on the scroll. There are um, seven trumpets, seven thunders, as in Revelation 10, seven bowls of wrath, as in chapter 16 of Revelation. And these are the uh, and these are only the times where Revelation actually mentions the sevens. Um, obviously, there are a lot of sevens that are not mentioned that aren't immediately itemized by the Apostle John. Did you know that there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation? The blessed are the statements and many more. Because this is a book of sevens. Revelation also uses numbers to convey its messages. The use of thirds comes into play as well. When the seven trumpets sound, they seem to affect a third of the land, of people, of animals, etc. This is not a literal third. Okay, but a significant minority of the subject that's being mentioned. Get a glimpse um, of what God, God has planned for Jerusalem and the unbelieving Jews as Ezekiel writes 600 years before it happened in Ezekiel. Let's go to Ezekiel 5. Now look what it says here in Ezekiel 5 starting at verse 1. It says, as for you, son of man, take a sharp sword Take it and use it as a barber's razor on your head and beard. Then take scales for weighing and dividing the hair. One third you shall burn in the fire at the center of the city. When the days of siege are completed, then you shall take one third and strike it with a sword around the city. And one third you'll scatter to the wind and I will unsheathe a sword behind them. Take also a few in number from them and bind them with the edges of your robes. Take again some of them and throw them into the fire and burn them in the fire. From the fire it will spread to all the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations with lands around her. But she has rebelled against my ordinances more wickedly than the nations against and against my statues more than the lands which surround her. For they have rejected my ordinances and have not walked in my statues. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you have more turmoil, uh, because you have more turmoil than the nations which surround you, and have not walked in my statutes, nor observed my ordinances, nor observed the ordinances of the nations which are surround you, therefore the Lord God says, Behold, I and I am against you, and I will execute judgments among you in the sight of the nations. Okay, moving down a little bit. Oh, actually, let's 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 keep going from there because. This is a forerunner of what we're going to see in Jerusalem when it gets destroyed in AD 70. Listen to this. Verse 9. And because of your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done, and the like which you will never see again. Therefore, fathers will eat their sons among you, and their sons will eat their fathers. For I will execute judgments on you and scatter you, your remnant, to every wind. So as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all of your detestable idols and with all your abominations, therefore I will also withdraw and my eye will have no pity and I will not spare. Listen to this. One third of you will die by plague or by consumed by famine among you. One third will fall by the sword among you. One third I will scatter to every wind and will unsheathe the sword behind them. Thus my anger will be spent and I will be satisfied my wrath on them and I will be appeased. Then they will know that I the Lord have spoken in my zeal and I have spent my wrath upon them. And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So that's Ezekiel. Let's go to Zechariah 13. Again, the idea is we're looking at how God divides judgments there in thirds. And he does it again here in Zechariah. Verses 7 and 9. 
It says, Awake, O, o sword, against my, my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. It will come about in the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, and the third will be left. And I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. When does that happen? I believe it happens after this cataclysm. Okay, the cutting off, the two parts that will be cut off is the cataclysm, the third part is going to be refined through the fire and they're the reason why we believe today they're the reason why we are christians today because they took the they they had to leave they had to flee jerusalem flee the destruction of the temple to be able to scatter the gospel finally around the earth now some see revelation divided into seven sections it has been marveled for centuries how john has ingeniously woven sevens into the book of revelation but even more so, the way he wove is like an intricate and complex tapestry throughout the entire book of Revelation and the, um, and the, I'm sorry, through the entirety of the book of the thread of the Old Testament prophets. This is mind-blowing if it was merely a human effort. John takes the images of the Old Testament and puts them to their ultimate usage in Revelation. Also, John manages to confirm ev almost every major doctrine in the whole of the scriptures the trinity the deity of christ the resurrection sin heaven hell and on and on now the number 12 is also very significant in revelation there are 24 elders right two times 12 there are 144,000 from the 12 tribes who receive the mark of god 12 tribes 12 foundations 12 apostles 12 gates 12 pillars and the number 12 seems to symbolize a complete number of God's people. 12 tribes of the Old Testament, 12 apostles in the New. Another interesting number is the number 1,000. While many debate that the thousand years in Revelation 20 are literal years, the number 1,000, the number 1000 is not used literally anywhere else in the scriptures. Let's look, for instance, at Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. Exodus 20, 4 to 6 says this. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of your fathers on the, on the children on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So does that mean that the fifth and sixth generation gets a pass? Probably not, right? It just means that the generations that continue to disobey him are going to suffer um, from the, you know, the negative effects of disobeying God. Now, let's look at Psalm 50 verses 9 through 11. Psalm 50 verses 9 through 11. It says, verse 9, I shall, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor any male goats out of your foals. For every beast in the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. 
So he owns the cattle of a thousand hills. That doesn't mean he does. He doesn't own the cattle of a thousand and one hills, right? Every cat, every hill after a thousand, he does not own those. So can we really say he meant a thousand there? Just a thousand? Probably not. It's symbolic. Okay. Um, how about Psalms ninety verse four? Psalm ninety verse four. It says, "You turn man to dust and say, return, O children of men, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes away, or as a watch." In the night again could you say that's in only a thousand years a literal thousand years I don't think you can from the context of it right it's just making it's just telling you that it's giving you a this uh, this amount of time and it's a long time right nobody none of us get to live a thousand years none of us all see a thousand years so that's more than enough time to make the point that God is going to be here right is going to be around way long longer than you and I as far as that goes. Second um, Peter 3 verses 3 or 9, that's one of the biggest arguments for the millennial. Because the apostle Peter says exactly that. Let's go to, let's go to Peter for Second Peter uh, chapter 3. It seems here that Peter is saying that in 2 Peter 3 verses 3 to 9. Alright, 3 to 9. Know that, listen to this. Know this, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues on since it was in the beginning of a creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that the word, by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Okay, which, uh, though, through which the world at the time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But... By his word, the present heavens and the earth are preserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, and the ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Okay? Again, is Peter using a literal thousand years here? Is a thousand years like a day to God? Well, ten million years is like a day to God. Right? That makes no sense to try to force a literal uh, interpretation of those thousand years. And again, when we look at the book of Revelation, okay, and people have tried to time and measure out God's prophetic words, they've been dead wrong every single time. It's not to be taken literally unless it's used uh, literally and for numeric purposes. A thousand shekels, for instance. Let's take a look at the church of Smyrna, Mentioned in Revelation 2.10. Revelation 2.10. Now here in Revelation 2.10 it says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. Alright. We're told that, it will, that they will suffer persecution for 10 days. And there isn't one commentator on the planet. Not one. That believes those are a literal 10 days. Okay. In Revelation 17, 12, we see that 10 kings for one hour will receive uh, authority as kings along with the beast. Is this a literal 60 minutes? Obviously not. Much more can be said and illuminated as we go through those particular sections. We're going to flesh those out, those, those scriptures in Revelation a lot more when we get to them. Okay. What do we have to look forward to from here? We're going to do one more study on the effects of how we view the return of Christ. 
How does the way we see the end times affects the way we live as Christians in the world today? Also, does the rest of the unbelieving world have a view and an end game when it comes to the end of the world? You bet. We have seen from Hollywood every year they come out with at least three movies on some type of apocalyptic end of the world. They're infatuated with it. They're obsessed with it, right? From the back from we can remember, they've been making movies on how the world is going to end. So Christians aren't the only ones preoccupied uh, with the outcome of Revelation and how this world ends. Trust me, the whole world is, okay? And we're going to talk about it. The world is gearing up for an unprecedented cosmic upheaval, if you will, in which, the, uh, which God or His Son is completely eradicated from the hearts and minds of future generations. And humanistic life, morality, and spirituality prevails, but not the good spirituality. Do you truly believe the world is simply sitting idly by, waiting for the end to come? No. They are preparing for a future by recreating the entire world in their image and likeness. God created us in His image and likeness. Okay, the uh, Humanity is trying to recreate the world and all of creation into their likeness. And that's one of the biggest sins that humans commit. And the world is working hard and preparing for that. So if you're into conspiracies and flights of fancy and uh, apocryphal and uh, revelation fiction, then you don't want to miss the next lesson. All right, I'm going to open you up for one final round of questions. That was a nice commercial. Um, Don, it's called a shameless plug. Yeah. <laughs> anybody, anybody else? Yes. Was the Garden of Eden destroyed? The Garden of Eden? Um, that's a good question. <sighs> the best I can say right now off the top of my head is that if not destroyed, at least re relocated uh, uh, magnificently because most, the tree of life is no longer uh, in, in, on earth. It's in heaven. The river of life is no longer on earth. It's in heaven. Uh, a lot of those things. So do I believe Eden exists on this earth today? Uh, no, I don't. And there's no biblical reason to believe that uh, at all. So does that kind of answer your question? Eden does not no, I don't believe it exists on earth anymore because God transposed all the best parts of Eden to heaven. So we're gonna enjoy we're gonna enjoy paradise but not on this earth. Yes. Okay. Last week I asked a question regarding the destruction of the temple. The destruction, okay? Yeah, and you know, you said that God was not willing at the temple, at the temple when the temple got destroyed. Right, right. That God, that the, basically, the, the by the time that Titus came to destroy Jerusalem and take the temple down, the holy, the holy of holies was desecrated and 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 empty. Most of the nothing was in there. Right, the the the, the seven lampstands, the um, the uh, holy of holies with the tapestry and all that, all that was gone. It was actually replaced by a lot of Babylonian art and, and, and stuff that they had put together themselves. So by the time uh, it gets destroyed, the Holy Spirit is no longer there. Okay, The old covenant cannot be uh, honored anymore because it's been done. It, it's, been re it's been completely done. So my, my question was, do we know uh, when was the last 
trying to do it with that identity. Well, well uh, I can answer your question by saying this. The moment that Jesus showed up on this earth and proclaimed and, 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 and walked into his ministry, right? The moment that John the Baptist declared him the Son of God who taketh away the sins of the world, from that moment on, no lamb would be worthy to be sacrificed for the sins of humanity. Uh, some people make the claim, like I, I believe it was then, some people will say, well, when Jesus was crucified, right, and his blood was shed, that was the last time any lamb on the planet would be worthy to be sacrificed for the atonement of Israel or the rest of the world for that matter. You see, so the covenant, when Jesus said, it is finished, it's signed off, it is over, the old covenant ended with him right there on the cross. The new covenant is inaugurated by his resurrection. You see, so from that point on, no lamb that they would sacrifice from that point on would would be would be um, uh, efficacious for sin. It wouldn't it wouldn't cleanse them of their sins. Yes, even though they were going through the motions and still performing the ritualistic movements, basically like a zombie, right? A dead body still animated. They had no spirit in them. They didn't have the, the, the favor of God in, anymore in them. And now, from the time Jesus is crucified and resurrected to the time the temple is destroyed, the, and I'll show you this, through the, out the, from Acts all the way through, the, uh, the, the apostles are urgently trying to get the message out to the entire world as they knew it, the land there, to every Jew they possibly could and save anybody, including the Gentiles, right, that they could, before that cataclysm came because once that happened and you did not receive Messiah, there is no sacrifice for sins left. There was no lamb worthy since he died. There's no lamb worthy to this day. If a third temple is built a, a, a month from now with all the utensils and everything they say they have ready, the moment they sacrifice another lamb in this day and age, that will be a cosmic blasphemy against the Son of God. You have trampled the Son of God underfoot. You have literally have caused, you have said that Jesus died for nothing. And Galatians makes that point very strongly. Did that kind of answer it somewhere? Yes. Because I don't even remember the question anymore. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. So, so that the Ark of the Covenant would be in heaven also, along with Eden? What's that? The Ark of the Covenant, would that be in heaven? Well, heck yeah, John, John saw it there. John saw it there, so it's got to be there. Okay. And what about the number six? Six, 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 rock and beast. Oh, you're going to have to stick around for that one. Because I'm, I'm not revealing it. I'm not as nice as God is. I'm not going to reveal that to you before it's time. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going to make you suffer through a lot of other chapters before I get you to. <laughs> but I do, prom I do promise you, you're going to be mind blown. What does, the, what does the number 666 signify? What it means? The number of the beast, the beast himself. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Numerology. Yeah, numerology has its uses in symbolism, 
but it's pure poppycock when it comes to trying to be used, the world using it for what? To predict the future, to predict what kind of person you are, or to predict, you know, if you're going to meet a tall, dark stranger, or whatever it is, that's pure nonsense. But, but, the Bible and the writers of the scriptures do use numbers as symbols, and that is legitimate, as long as those symbols are of a biblical, and, and you know, and the, the usage of them is in a biblical way, in a biblical manner, and we can confirm that, right? We don't go nuts with those numbers. We They have a specific meaning for a specific purpose, and the Bible outlines those very clearly. Again, one last question. Okay. Okay, so I know that we're supposed to have a new body, and you, and you say it's supposed to be a, a, a new body, right? Correct. But, but Jesus, when he died, uh, he didn't resurrect uh, from a new body because he still had all the wounds and stuff. What's up with that? Okay, so um, as far as the, the uh, our resurrected bodies are, okay, we're gonna be we're gonna have these exact exact same flesh and bone bodies, not flesh and blood, right? Because First Corinthians fifteen says the corruption is in the blood, so these will be flesh and bone bodies governed by the Holy Spirit. In other words, perfected. Right? Uh, the, the love handles will be gone. I'll have a full, beautiful head of hair like Don. Right? Um, uh, will be perfected. Okay? But it will be the same body, which is why I believe that we will be able to recognize ourselves in heaven, those our loved ones and all that. Right? So Jesus had the same body, but he maintained the scars. Right? The, be the Lamb of God that looked like he'd been slain. He'll have his scars. But his body was able to travel through time and space. It was able to travel through walls. It was glorified and managed by the Holy Spirit. It was a spirit-controlled body as opposed to a physical flesh body. Okay? Bible says that when we see him, we're going to be like him. Okay? Jesus said, touch me and see. Okay? I am, uh, you know, I'm, I, I, my body is flesh and bone, not a spirit. Right? It's not going to go through me. So we're going to have these physical bodies, but they will be uh, spiritually controlled. And we will be able to see, hear, and function at our optimal perfected level from like, the day we were created. We will touch each other. Yep. We will touch each other. Yes. Yeah, and that's and that's the beautiful hope, right? We're not going to stop being ourselves. We're not going to be chubby little angels flying up in heaven, you know, with little harps. Um, we won't be wearing a mask. And we won't be wearing masks. Yes. <laughs> Anybody else before I close in prayer? Um. I just wanted to mention, I, I know it's not part of the revelation part of it, but when you talked about the thousands yes. and went back to Exodus, I love that verse because um, I think my great-great-great-grandfather, he traveled across the country in 1888 John. with his kids and, and, and you know, with the family, and he got to Tacoma and established the first Christian church in Tacoma. Mm. And I look at that, and it's like, I'm one of those thousands of generations. And, and for every single one of us that are on this call, or on this, you know, um, in the study, we also 
are passing on that legacy to thousands of generations of our descendants to to be believers to be blessed by God. Well, we we definitely believe in Jesus. We definitely need to be right. And I said this before in the study that um, if we're not preparing the next generation, right, to, for the realities of the fact that they might, you know, we we're going to probably go to Jesus before He comes to us. For the last two thousand years, every saint, every saint on the planet has gone to Jesus first, as opposed to Him coming to us. Even the majority, so many of them that believed that Jesus would come to them during their lifetime. So, again, I'm not making the point or saying that Jesus is not coming back by no means. All I'm saying is we're not to be walking around trying to figure out the sign of the times and when it's going to happen. We're supposed to be attacking evil wherever we see it and living those kingdom lives, walking the kingdom mile, providing that kingdom help, that grace, that love, everything that was outlined to us in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? When God made his first covenant, he stood on the mountain and gave the laws to Moses. Moses brought them down to the people. Now, God is on the mountain, the sermon on the mountain, and he is relating to us directly from his mouth what kind of people we're supposed to be on this earth. And I don't see anywhere where it says just, you know, let the world do its thing. It's going to go to hell in a handbasket. Just be ready when they come so I, can, so I can pull you out of here. No. We're to be occupying and busy until he returns. And every parable says the same thing. The servants that were idle, they got destroyed. They got thrown into outer darkness. They were weeping and gnashing of teeth. The servants that were doing his will were the ones that were blessed and honored and ready for him when the time came. You see? And so I think, unfortunately, and Pastor, Pastor Mike made a great example, and I'm going to get you out of here right now, but let me just say this. Pastor Mike made the example of the fact that, that they were building that dam and they were going to let the water go, which means this was going to destroy that city that was down there. And so what did the people do? They let it go to bunk. They didn't repaint. They didn't rebuild. They didn't put it. Why would they? Why would they? If in another month... It was going to be washed away and destroyed. Why would you do anything to improve anything in that place? Improve your fellow man. Improve your house. Improve. There wouldn't be any reason to. And unfortunately, as much as on the one hand, a lot of legitimate people out there saying, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. That's right. That is absolutely so. You know, Greg Laurie and his Harvest Crusades, Franklin Graham, with his, that we need those. They're, they are performing a major, magnificent service for the body of Christ. But the message has to be, once you come to Jesus, you better start planning and preparing and adding the kingdom to your life and budget. Part of your budget goes to the kingdom. The way you train your kids as kingdom citizens is part of the bargain. The way you live your life and represent Christ on this earth and what you're doing to stem the flow of evil, that's all part of that kingdom budget now. But in no way, shape, or form are we to just kind of kind of move back and kind of let things go the way they are. We need to be in the fight till the very last day. Amen? All right, then. Well, I love you. Again, I'm grateful to you for hanging out uh, for as many lessons as you have so far. So I, I love you. I appreciate you, your, 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 uh, your zeal. And uh, like I said, even if you don't necessarily buy into my view of the end times, I hope that your approach to the scriptures and your 
word is that it i think you know it's opening a few doors for you to be able to grasp the scriptures a little bit stronger and better than before and have hope let's have some hope right let's be strengthened and encouraged and blessed and not walk in despair regardless of who gets elected regardless of who's in power that doesn't matter one whit to the kingdom of god because we all are obligated to walk with jesus regardless of anything else that's out there so let's pray and i'll send you on your way Father, again, I thank you for this magnificent study and for um, this interaction we have with the saints. Bless us and strengthen us to have the right, the right perspective, Father, as we delve into your word, as we dig deep, as we gain and grow and learn. And help us to be those citizens of the kingdom of God now, Father. Citizens living um, now in the kingdom of God, not waiting to live in the kingdom of God when we die. We are citizens now. We're in the kingdom of God now, Father. The kingdom of God is among us. And so help us live it, Father, for Jesus Christ every second of every day. May everybody that's listening be blessed and strengthened and encouraged. Those that are sick and infirm and struggling right now, give their hearts peace, Father, and give them grace and fill them with your Holy Spirit. And we praise and thank you for everything you give us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, saints. See you next Tuesday. Good night. This concludes Lesson 4, Part 2 of the style and scope of the book of Revelation. Please join us for Lesson 5 of Revelation Decoded, Why Our View of End Times Matters. Does it really matter what you believe about the end times and the future of humanity? Of course it does. Everyone has an eschatology, that is, an idea of what the future and even what the end of the earth looks like. For Christians, it's a little more serious. Why? Because we claim to get our end time information from the source himself, God and his word. Christians get their information from God's revelation. We need to be very mindful of that. This will be our last prep study before we dig into chapter 1 of Revelation. You don't want to miss this one. Don't get left behind. Think you know Revelation? Come and see. May God bless you, saints.